Hello and a very warm welcome to the latest Asset Allocated podcast. I'm Dave Baxter and today I am joined not only by our very own David Thorpe, but also by John Hustleby, Head of Multi-Asset at Line Trust. So John, thanks very much for, for joining us. Clearly it remains a quite turbulent, uh, to use the euphemistic term, perhaps an interesting time for, for allocators at the minute. I suppose to kick off, it'd be interesting just to hear kind of what you've been doing in, in portfolios. I believe you've um, you've just done a recently done an annual rebalance, and you know how much have you you chopped and changed? What have you tried to kind of finesse or overhaul? Yeah, uh, well, good question. I mean, it's certainly been a it's been a painful quarter, David, and it's, it's been mm. a, a painful year, year to date as well, and. I suppose investors have been dealing in the first quarter with um, surging inflation, uh, particularly with sort of zero tolerance in China and then obviously the war in Europe. And then in the last quarter, uh, very much as a result of that, uh, central banks, you know, their name implies, you know, have been taking a, a central role in trying to fa- uh, fight inflation and uh, as a result of that you know uh, we've seen um, sort of interest rate hikes um, as levels of inflation have risen to uh, levels that we haven't seen for 40 years or or, or or so to show you or to sort of demonstrate I should say how extraordinary it's been you know um, obviously the Federal Reserve almost moved from not wanting to hike towards the end of last year to perhaps you know uh, we, we might start by putting rates up so we've seen 25, we've seen 50, and more recently we saw a we saw a 75. So really signalling, you know, that they are, uh, you know, wanting to get serious about, um, you know, fighting inflation. The, the last time we saw the Federal Reserve uh, uh, hike by 75 basis points was in uh, November 1994. So quite a while ago, and I suppose you know when we're thinking about the tactical allocation, I think we've got to think about the fact that central banks now are no longer uh, supporting investors after 13 years of doing so. So, so since the global financial crisis, you know, with um, effectively the tools that central banks have are, are three. You know, we've got the their balance sheet. So, you know, we're all very familiar now uh, with QE, quantitative easing, and now we're, we've got to get familiar with QT, Q, uh, quantitative tightening. Mm. Guidance has always been their thing um, in terms of, uh, you know, talking to the market about expectations. And then finally, you know, the third tool they have, which is a more blunt instrument, I would suggest, is, is interest rates. And, you know, all three of them previously were very relaxed or very much showing, you know, uh, monetary easing. Um, and now what has been a pretty quick turnaround, you know, is, uh, is now more of a, a headwind than a tailwind. So after 13 years of effectively low interest rates, low inflation, dare I say, sort of low growth, uh, you know, we, we've had quite an inflection point around the other way. So when, it, when we're thinking about our tactical allocation, uh, you know, we want to be cautious but we don't want to be super bearish. One of the things that we certainly realise that all of those asset classes that have been performing well today, or indeed in the last, you know, three months or more, those asset classes, those re- regions, those countries um, that have been performing well are unlikely 
to lead the market into uh, a recovery uh, on the on the upside. So to answer the question eventually in terms of what we've been up to, um, and, and you know the danger in asking me that question in the first place, David. But anyway, <laughs> uh, to answer the question of what we've been up to, we've, we've basically been thinking about, you know, um, and, and I think this is right of every investment process. I think, you know, preparation is the key and not reaction. So we've been thinking about our portfolios and making sure that they are in the strongest position uh, to capture the upside. So, you know, growth is underperformed, quality is underperformed, small caps have underperformed. Uh, and, you know, uh, also over the longer term, uh, in terms of equity markets, um, you know, those countries outside of the US have uh, underperformed uh, as well. And, you know, uh, th- there there are, as I said, potential for, changes going forward uh, as central banks around the world, not only the Federal Reserve, as I said, you know, are really creating uh, headwinds for investors and and not the tailwinds that we've seen previously. Mm. Probably, I suppose, that the headline to that is one of, you know, diversification for me feels like it's going to be more important going forward than it was in the past, where, quite frankly, you know, with the benefit of hindsight and, uh, I do get reminded of this by, by by some people on a regular basis. We could have thrown all our money into U.S. equities, and job would have been done. Yeah, yeah. I guess that's been the discussion for so many years, hasn't it? Like whether yep. U.S. equities will stop leading things, and they just kept doing so. Um, I wanted you mentioned interestingly, of course, you know we're perhaps in a different paradigm now. You've moved from QE to QT, and I always think an interesting um, concern that's been raised in in you know, multiple years is this idea that lots of um, fund managers don't actually have the experience of something that is different to the kind of low rate, easy policy kind of environment. So is when you're kind of looking at teams, is there, you know, do you, do you kind of give much kind of weight to the level of experience in a team of kind of different circumstances? Or, you know, is there what are your kind of thoughts on that that concern? Yeah, no, I, th- I think it's I think it's a good question. It's something something definitely to consider. I mean, uh, I suppose first things first in in our own team, you know, uh, having been managing money since since the mid eighties, it's not something that can necessarily be be thrown at our experience in in that respect. And so, you know, uh, having uh, managed money from the mid eighties onwards, um, you know, the importance of that question is is certainly not not lost upon me. Um, I, I think, again, you know, we, as we always have been, we've always been wary of funds uh, with, you know, a very short term track record. Um, and, you know, we're always looking for that experience with it within within teams. Uh, and as you said, you know, over the last well, more than a decade, you know, I think you go right back to the to the beginnings of the financial crisis that, you know, um, as uh, you know, it's just been a, well, you know, almost a, a one trick pony to some extent. Mm. And going forward, as I said, you know, I think that you're going to be looking for multiple sources of returns uh, and, uh, you know, uh, looking to be perhaps a little bit more balanced uh, in the approach. That said, you know, um, what we don't want to see is managers necessarily changing their spots you know we firmly believe that when it comes to selecting funds and fund managers 
that we're looking for consistency of process and not necessarily consistency of performance. So, you know, um, where, where there may be less, perhaps, value managers these days than there were previously, uh, there's still enough out there to choose from. So when we're considering our, you know, our lineup in terms of our blend, you know, we're looking for growth managers, quality managers, value managers, and small cap managers as well. And, you know, I, I, we don't have much trouble in finding them. And the key here is to make sure that they stay consistent to their process, because if they start drifting, then, you know, we'll have a, a, a challenge on our hands from risk management where we'll basically be going overweight a factor that uh, which we didn't intend to do uh, when we first allocated it. And is that a thing you do see happening? The you know you mentioned style drift, which is the perpetual concern. And I suppose now, interestingly, perhaps you'd worry that a, a, an avowed growth manager might be drifting in more into value as opposed to the concern about the reverse for many years. But is it something you actually kind of see much of, or is it is it just a, a kind of concern that's always there? Well, I suppose we you know number one we we set ourselves up in our process to uh, monitor it and to identify style drift and you can see it in the in just straightforward in the weekly numbers you can see it in returns based style analysis that sort of style map uh, that you can you know split uh, the investing universe up into large cap small cap value versus growth in that respect and you can start tracking that and then finally you know um should you not pick it up on those sorts of early warning radars then we bring in the portfolios on a regular basis from the underlying fund managers uh, and then you know put that through a holdings based uh, analysis uh, once again to make sure that the managers are staying true and consistent uh, to their investment style and to their approach Don, thank you for that. We noticed that you have a very substantial overweight to European equities and underweight to UK. And that, I suppose, follows on from the, the style drift question, because I suppose they fit in the same style bucket. So that's within the style you've chosen Europe over UK. Yeah, so I think there's some context to this. I think you'd find we are actually slightly overweight, the, the UK these days in terms of uh, our tactical acidification. However, um, you know, the context to this is that the portfolios that we are managing are portfolios and funds, indeed, uh, which have a target risk um, objective to them. So we are uh, investing with volatility bands in mind. Effectively, we're running, uh, you know, portfolios from risk grade one up to risk grade 10. Now, uh, not all the portfolios and all the funds are offered in that range. However, what we have to put together when we're doing our strategic allocation, which we review on an annual basis, is to make sure that the elements that we put together, the asset classes, the countries and regions, are, are ones where we take into account the return, the risk and the correlations to basically uh, deliver on the uh, on the risk wristbands to stay within the within the midpoint of those wristbands. Therefore, sometimes um, you know we have to perhaps add in uh, asset classes, uh, further asset classes, uh, which may sound which may look a little bit more counterintuitive to what it is. However, once we've done that strategic allocation, we can then overlay it to some degree with our tactical classification and when you look at that today uh, you'll you'll basically find that we're 
underweight US and elsewhere within equities were either neutral to overweight. And within different regions, how you, I mean, we've discussed some of the kind of perpetual debates about whether the US can continue to lease and, and all those issues, but how do you feel about active versus passive in those different regions? I mean, traditionally, you know, people have always thought the US is incredibly hard, hard to beat, whereas kind of other areas are more dispersion. But how are you kind of seeing things at the minute? Yeah, I, I think there's two things that, you know, in, in your preparation for the recovery when it comes along. And, you know, um, I can tell you it will come along. I can't tell you when, unfortunately. And, uh, uh, you know, if I did, you know, that, that would be great. Uh, however, I think a couple of things, that, as we have been doing, I think you have to review your uh, balance between active and passive and, and also your your factors as well. And, you know, we just touched upon that earlier on uh, in terms of, you know, value and growth um, quality and, and small cap. So when it comes to active and passive, the way that we look at to review that is, well, the, the, I suppose, once again, if you, if you look over the last 10 years, if we if we look at what I think are the major, you know, what most people use as the um, major equity investing uh, uh, asset classes or buckets, uh, probably is a, is a better word, then obviously most people are using UK, US, Europe, Japan, Asia and emerging markets. So we're using those six uh, equity buckets to, to allocate from. They, uh, when you're looking at that, you know, over the last 10 years, and you're looking at a standard family of passives and looking how they have performed against active managers in their relative peer groups, then, you know, uh, in some cases, uh, the passive are right in the middle of the pack. Uh, and in other cases, you know, they are, you know, uh, in the top quartiles. But in no cases are they in the bottom quarter. So over the last 10 years, that argument for active management in some places has been has been weakened. And, uh, you know, and particularly uh, highlighted in this last period where small caps have underperformed and so has growth underperformed. Now, small caps have underperformed because of the derating, but more more to some extent because of this inflation surge, where small caps tend to be the price takers rather than the the, the price uh, uh, makers in that respect. So small caps have come under enormous pressure, and that small cap premium where most active managers uh, find themselves outperforming has really underperformed. It's underperformed pretty dramatically in the last uh, sort of six to nine months or so. So there's an opportunity there going forward. As I said earlier on, uh, you know, those things which are performing well today will not necessarily be performing well tomorrow when the, re- when the, recovery, uh, when the recovery comes. So I think you have to have a process in place to decide upon how much you want to put in passive and how much you want to put in active. And the way we go about it is to first of all look at the index that we have in our benchmark. Now we are using MSCI indices. Uh, if you take the US, uh, the UK as an MSCI indice, then you will see that it is full of mega caps. In fact, it's it's a uh, you know I think it's performed. It's got a, a positive performance this year, whereas the average UK growth fund has got a negative performance. It's outperformed by some some degree. So first of all, you've got to look at the index and then you've got to look at um, 
three things within that index. The first thing is you've got to look at effectively the uh, the dispersion within the index, uh, the sort of cross-sectional volatility, I think, to call it its a, a, a appropriate uh, a name. Uh, and in doing so, you're really looking for, uh, you know, the, the, um, the gap between the winners and the losers. So if it's spread out, if that dispersion is spread out, then that's typically good for active managers. The second thing you need to look at is basically the winners versus the losers. So basically, if you take a 12-month rolling period, if you've got more stocks outperforming the index, you know, typically we're talking about 52, 48 here, then that's a good period for active managers. But the key one, I think, is concentration. So you have indices where, you know, larger stocks can represent 8, 9, 10% of an index. And if you look then at the top 10, they can represent 30, 40, 50% of an index. It is more difficult when that concentration uh, is, is uh, high in that respect um, to, uh, for an active manager to outperform. Because if a large stock represents 8, 9, 10% of an index, then they've got to take one hell of a, a bet against it. So when you look at that analysis, you basically, where well, we have looked at that analysis and continue to do so, our current review says you're going to be better off, uh, we think, over the medium term by having a bias towards active management in the UK and in Europe uh, and uh, more uh, that, that more than having in the US and emerging markets. So least uh, bias towards uh, active in the US and emerging markets. And the middle ground is Japan and Asia. Thank you, John. Um, and. Uh, you've uh, covered the uh, equity allocations and your your thoughts on equities uh, very broadly. But if we if we turn to uh, fixed income, how do you how do you think of bonds in the current climate? We we uh, obviously saw yields uh, uh, rise quite quite sharply earlier in the year, although they're still negative in in real terms. Uh, but over the past um, Number of weeks actually long long yields have uh, have come in quite have come in a little bit, um, maybe as as investors start to to ponder uh, the possibility of uh, recession. But how do you allocate the bond right now? Is it is it still a question of um, fighting inflation is more important than fighting recession, or the other yeah. way around? Yeah, I mean, uh, uh, you know, I think uh, I think I've said well, I think we move from uh, inflation into recession as a as a, as uh, as the market has taken their natural course uh, as as a result. I mean, I think first things first when it comes to bonds, you know, there was a lot of noise, and I do call it noise as well. You know, two or three months ago, where the sixty forty portfolio is all over, bonds had a negative year last year, and most likely to have a negative year this year, unless. You know, we see some real, real drama. You know, we never rule that out in markets, in, in, or nor in life either. In that respect, so you know, bonds have had, had a tough time for exactly the same reasons why equities are a tough time. I think it's fair to say that at this point of the cycle, this part of the market cycle, the economic cycle, we always see that bonds and equities become more correlated when interest rates are rising. And indeed, when interest rates start to fall as well, we tend to see that greater correlation. But, you know, that's not the case uh, over the, ho- the whole cycle. We have been in that so-called 40-year, uh, you know, bond bull market, you know, um, people signaling it's all over and, uh, you know, uh, you should you should never be in bonds again. I mean, you know, it's complete rubbish at the end of the day. You know, where we're seeing, uh, you know, bonds 
starting uh, or you know, the yields, uh, uh, the starting yields now are, are uh, dramatically and significantly higher than they were at the beginning of the year. You know, talking to a high yield manager, yeah, data might be a little bit out of date, but you know, he was talking about uh, in the US, treasuries being you know around the three percent mark, high yield being you know, um, you know, around about eight and a half yields you could find. Now you've got some challenges with default risk, but spreads of five and six percent. Well, that's very attractive. And I think that probably, David, answers your question in terms of why people have been nibbling away again. So I don't think that, um, you know, uh, uh, that, you know, bonds, you know, if you can find alternative sources to bonds, and that is alternative asset classes or alternative strategies, uh, and they have something that can provide you with some sort of return some sort of uh, different type of risk, then, you know, I would certainly encourage it. But certainly, I wouldn't be throwing out every bond I had in my portfolio to replace it uh, with those types of um, with those types of funds, either asset classes nor, nor strategies. So I think we've we're we're still in a, a challenging period for bonds. Uh, but, uh, you know, that sort of derating that we've seen, um, I think, you know, it starts to make them attractive. And when we've looked at our tactical application and scoring, we've certainly been increasing um, our scoring towards bonds, particularly against cash. Would you say you found those alternative sources at all? Or, you know, how do you feel? And the, it's, it seems, I suppose, to me, like, you know, selectors tend to be relatively split still on either they are love or at least pretty warm on alternatives or they're still very much kind of in the bond camp? Yeah, I think, as I said, I think there is a big difference between an alternative um, uh, asset class and an alternative strategy. And I think fund selectors are pretty worn with perhaps, to some extent, the the alternative strategies. You know, um, they, uh, obviously, they are very much focused on um, yeah, manager skill at the end of the day, um, and you know, you your kind of absolute return type thing. And- yeah, yeah, those, those types of vehicles, and you know, um, there there are a number of them that have done very well, and I think it, it goes back or hand in hand with a with a style drift question. You know, we spoke about earlier on. You know, you've got to very much focus on the managers uh, there uh, and look for consistency of process. Uh, because you know it, it doesn't matter whether it's a long only or or, uh, or, or something alternative. You know you're not going to get consistency of performance, and so therefore you're know, you're looking for their uh, consistency of style and approach. When it comes to um, alternative strategies and asset classes, or should I say, well, when it comes to alternative asset classes, I should say, then that's where the market is certainly winding, increasing all the time. You know, infrastructure, uh, different types of property. You know, uh, these types of real asset types of uh, uh, portfolios out there. You know, where you are more relying upon the asset class um, than the uh, than perhaps the overall skill of the manager. Thank you, John. And within bond allocation, are for example strategic bonds the most interesting place to be, just because those fund managers can kind of go anywhere, or does one need to be more bespoken and selective than that? Well, um, I can't talk to what others do. I can only sort of talk to what we do. And we are more selective, once again, because we are building you know, target risk funds, 
target risk portfolios. And in doing so, we want to be in control of the component parts. So if we allocate to a strategic asset, uh, to a, a strategic bond manager, then we lose control of uh, some of those parts. And you know the way that they would perhaps swing into credit away from credit in that respect. So we divide our market up into government bonds, index linked. We have credit and high yield, and also use uh, EMD as well within within those portfolios. So yeah, that's the way we allocate because in the context of uh, making sure we deliver within those volatility bands. Certainly uh, today, if you're going to allocate more towards credit, um, then you know clearly you're increasing the beta of your portfolio. And you know uh, whether that's the right time to do it now, I'm pretty sure it is for the next five to 10 years, but you might get a better opportunity in the next 12 months or so to, to increase further. Well, some very interesting food for thought there, but unfortunately that is all we have time for. So uh, thanks very much to John for joining us and as always to to David for his time. And uh, thank you for listening.